Come on, come on. It's good to be here, isn't it? Anybody, anybody happy to be in church on a Wednesday night? I thought you would be. Come on, turn to your neighbor and just say, I was hoping I'd sit next to you tonight. Turn to your other neighbor and say, yeah, you too, you too. Sorry, I forgot about you. Well, we have, um, <clears throat> we've been in a couple weeks talking about situationships, so maybe you've gotten the chance to get out of a situationship or maybe get some clarity in a situationship, but we're going to keep going in tonight and next week. We think it's worth four weeks, so that's where we're going for the next two weeks, and um, I'm excited for tonight. I, I really believe that um, tonight could be a deal breaker for some of you, so that's what I've been praying and expecting tonight. We'll check back in maybe next week with Chad and Brittany and see what has happened with the saga so far. But I want to ask you a question just from the get-go tonight. I want to ask you this. How do you decide, how do you decide what is best for you? A lot of decisions in your life. I mean, I mean, everything from big decisions to little decisions of, you know, what are you going to do tomorrow when you wake up? Or what's your exercise routine like? Or is that even something you're interested in? Or, or whatever. How do, you, how do you come to the conclusion of what will bring you life and like a thriving life? Like what's going to cause you to thrive? And what would bring your life to destruction? I mean, how do you come to that decision? Maybe if we were to actually ask you and you come up here and share, maybe you've thought about, well, you know, really a lot of my decisions are based upon what my parents taught me. So I, I hear all the time, you know, I was raised to know right from wrong. So maybe that's you, you were raised to know right from wrong or whatever that means. But you, you've had some sort of teaching in your life to help you determine what it looks like for my life to thrive and what it looks like for my life to be led down a path to destruction. Because here's what I was thinking about. It's a little bit of an odd thought. But, you know, no one willingly wakes up and says, I am hoping today to uh, start doing some crystal meth and become completely dysfunctional and ruin my life. That is my goal for today. I mean, I, I haven't come across that person if you have then okay, but I haven't come across that person. I mean, e even the person who becomes a severe drug addict doesn't do so typically because they're trying to destroy their life. Typically, it's because that drug or whatever it is that they're addicted to brings them some sort of feeling of relief or release. It helps them get away from the pain in their life or it brings them to some sort of escape from everything. And so they do it for a reason. They, they do it because that, to them, brings them to some sort of better place in life. It helps them cope with pain or trauma or loneliness or helps them just kind of get through the day. I've been fascinated by just this one easy scripture in John chapter 14. Maybe you've got it memorized, but it just says this. Jesus says these words. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Meaning this, I'm the way to the Father. I'm the way to heaven. No one gets to the Father unless they come through me, Jesus. 
meaning that. I mean, I am the truth, meaning he is the truth about how life works, about how life operates, about really answering the question we just asked of how do you decide what brings you a life that's thriving and what brings you to a life that's destruction. I mean, he is the truth. What's found in him is true. And then he's the life. That ultimately that truth that he's leading us to is what ultimately brings life and life to the full. Not life free from hardship or pain. If you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, you know that that's not what you've signed up for. That even the scripture tells us that there will be trials. Even for the Jesus follower. So the question that I have for really all young adults you're considered a young adult, is this, what, or really more appropriately, who, who are you trusting to bring you life? Who are you trusting to bring you life? Because if you're just following kind of the wind of culture or what's normalized through your favorite Instagram account, I mean, you're really trusting in somebody. Somebody is behind the narratives that you're believing. So who are you trusting about where life is found and where the full life is really found? I want to begin tonight by reading some scripture out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'm going to let this just kind of be our starting place tonight for what we're getting into. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verse 3 through verse 5. 1 Thessalonians, kind of a hard book to find. Page 1768 in my Bible. No idea what that is for yours. If you got your Bible, go ahead and hold it in the air. Nice. Love it. Love it. One day I'm going to think of a catchy phrase to say, like hold it in the air and say, This is my Bible. I love it, or something like that. We'll try it next week, okay? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. It says this. Pay attention to these first few words. I think they're really crucial. For this is God's will. Everybody's always asking, what is God's will for my life? Pay attention. He says, this is God's will. Your sanctification. I love that. We've been spending a lot a couple weeks now talking about what does it mean for you to mature in faith, for you to grow, for you to be sanctified. It says, your sanctification, colon, and then this is what he says, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. So this is God's will, your sanctification. In other words, the process of you fully surrendering every part of yourself. I mean, this is what's on the table for me as well, of surrendering all that I have. Lord, all of me for you. Every piece of me, all of me for you. Lord, rid me of anything in my life that is hindering me from being fully surrendered to you. That is sanctification, full surrender to him and the process of that, 
Where, this is the question, where am I trusting another way, another truth? Where am I believing that something else will bring me to life? And sadly, the belief and therefore the behavior of most young adults and what they're choosing to believe at really an alarming rate is not the gospel of Jesus that says take up your cross and follow him who is the way, the truth, and the life, but rather it's the gospel of sexual pleasure. The belief that your body is simply a tool to experience a state of euphoria, whether as an individual or with another person or persons. And as long as you aren't hurting anyone, then everything is okay. And regardless of what is being preached on campus to you about it, well, you know, it's just a few years of having fun and having a good time. I'll kind of get my life together after that. Or, you know, it's just a part of discovering who I am or hey, you actually really love that person and you guys are in a committed relationship, probably gonna get married. I wanna stand before you tonight and ask you this. How does following Jesus intersect with your sexuality? I mean, what are the implications of the fact that you follow Jesus on your sexuality? I mean, if he is the truth and that truth leads to life, then don't you want to know what he has to say? Don't you want to know what he would want for you? I mean, not, your, not, not what does your roommate think or what does your professor think or even your parents or, or barstool sports or, or not, not whatever you're hearing out there in culture. But what does the maker of heaven and earth and you and me, what does he have to say about your sexuality? I want to read to you tonight an article or parts of an article that I came across in the magazine called Vanity Fair. And it's a little bit of uh, just a picture into our culture. And honestly, as I was reading through this and thinking about sharing it with you, you know, the reality is, is that this is more of your reality than it is mine. I mean, you're, you're living in this world. But I want to read to you just part of it. This, this, uh, the writer of this article, just, the article is called Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse. And so she interviewed a few different people and got a few different opinions. I want to read to you some of the things that the article says because I think it's alarming. I think it's scary. I think it's gross. But I think it gives us some insight into the world that we're living in. You probably already know. But let's just get on the same page together. The article said that one guy said this. These are his words. Guys view everything as a competition. Who slept with the best, hottest girl? With these dating apps, he says, you're always sort of prowling around. You could talk to two or three girls at a bar and pick up the best one, or you could swipe a couple hundred people a day. I mean, the sample size is so much larger. It's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week, and chances are sleeping with all of them. So really, at the end of the year, you can rack up around 100 girls. That's what he says. The article went on to say, Alex, his friends all agree, is the tender king. A young man of such deft text game. That's the ability to actually convince someone to do something over text. 
Marty, his friend, explains that he is able to entice young women into his bed on the basis of a few text exchanges while letting them know up front that he is not interested in having a relationship. How does he do it, Marty asks, blinking. He says, this guy has talent. A couple other quotes from the article. It's like ordering Seamless or Uber Eats, but you're ordering a person. One girl told the reporter, they start out with send me nudes. Or they say something like, I'm looking for something quick within the next 10 or 20 minutes, are you available? She says, it's straight efficiency. That's where we're at. One girl says, if he texts you before midnight, he actually likes you. If he texts you after midnight, it's for your body. The writer said a few young women admitted to her that they use dating apps as a way to get free meals. She calls it Tinder food stamps. <laughs> it's funny, but it's not, is it? And the thing is, none of this is new to you. I mean, you're, you're, you're more aware of this than I am. You're probably sitting there like, Austin, this is, this is old news. This is the world that we live in. And so uh, tonight I, I'm filled with compassion for each of you because you're living in a wild world with ridiculous accessibility to decisions that present themselves as quick and easy, but in reality, hear me closely, will radically alter who you are becoming. They present themselves as just quick and easy and fleeting, but they will radically alter who you are becoming. And if you're a follower of Jesus in here tonight, how does your approach to your sexuality affect who you are becoming? That's the thing that you have to wrestle with. How does it affect who you are becoming? I want to point out to you another scripture that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to go ahead and read it. You can write it down and look at it later. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this, flee sexual immorality. This next, this next part is really fascinating to me. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Let me read that again. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. So Paul, putting the words of God on paper, says that sexual sin is different from all other sins because it is not just against God or against someone else. It is that, but it is against yourself. I find that fascinating. For all of the talk these days about self-care and doing what's right for you and taking care of yourself, I feel like God kind of started the conversation thousands of years ago. and was like, yeah, take care of yourself. Sexual sin is a sin against your body. So flee sexual immorality because it's a sin against your body. And so tonight, I just want to give two main points, just kind of two things. Listen, this conversation is massive, and it's really scary to try to attempt to tackle this in one message. So I just want to give two points that I think is crucial for you to understand where you're at tonight. And the first one is this. We, we have to say this up top. And, and, and I think it deserves maybe a little cheer or something, but let's just say this up top. God is not against sex. 
You didn't want to cheer for that. That's okay. Okay, it's awkward. Maybe it's awkward. We're in an awkward place tonight. Just go ahead and enjoy it. Go ahead and tap your neighbor and say, man, I didn't know he was going there tonight, but thanks for inviting me. Um, (laughs) We're we're going there tonight, okay? So, number one, you got to know this. God is not against sex. And this is really, really important because a lot of people grow up or they come to kind of think of sex in really two different categories. Number one over here is they have this feed the desire. They fall into feed the desire. So if you feel it, if it feels good, if it's what you want to do, then go for it. Just feed it. It's there. It must be there for a reason. Just go for it. It's a good thing. But then over here on the other side, you don't have feed the desire. You have fear the desire. And so a lot of times people fall into one of the categories. If they're not feeding it, then maybe they're fearful of it. Especially if you grew up in church or you grew up in a Christian environment that taught about sexual immorality, that was a normal thing, then maybe you have a a perspective of it tonight that's more like fear the desire. And so if it's there, then it's like, man, something's wrong with me. What's going on? Why is it here? And instead of this great thing that God created from the very beginning, it was his idea, and it just needs to be stewarded by you, rather than that, you begin to think that it's this awful thing, something's wrong with you, why do you have these feelings? And this is pretty common, a lot of Christians who grow up just going, this is bad stuff, I gotta stay away from it, fear the desire kind of stuff, then get married and have to flip the switch, and now all of a sudden go, no, this is a good thing and I'm supposed to enjoy it, and they have a hard time. And so it's imperative that you begin to see that sex is a good thing. God created it. It's a beautiful thing. It just needs to be stewarded in the right way. When I was in middle school, I had a traumatic experience happen to me. It was one winter break. Me and my buddies had nothing to do. We're seventh grade, just like, what are we going to do? I don't know. So we got some fireworks. Anybody love fireworks? Yeah, yeah, I used to. Let me tell you the story. So we got some fireworks, and we went out into some, like, wooded areas, okay? And if you've put in some pieces together in here, you know, okay, it's winter time, which means everything is dead. And we went out into a wooded area. Not very smart. I know. That's me. We go out into this wooded area. We start playing with firecrackers. We're shooting bottle rockets at each other, having a good time. And I don't remember exactly what happened, but one of them, we started on the ground, And it just kind of created this circle, and we're like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then before we knew it, this thing just got bigger and bigger, and then all of a sudden we start trying to stomp this thing out, and it doesn't go out, and the three of us could not handle it. And before we know it, in like 30 minutes, an acre of woods just across from our neighborhood in Sugar Hill, Georgia, was burned down. Two fire trucks come out. They're going crazy. Police are out there going wild, and me and my buddies are just like, Oh, my goodness. And so the effects of that on me are like a couple weeks ago, I'm doing some yard work, and I've got a burn barrel in our backyard, and I'm putting stuff in there, and I go to light this thing, and I'm literally like shaking because I still remember 20-something years ago being in seventh grade when I had this traumatic experience with fire, right? How many of you know that fire can do a lot of good in the right kind of context, right? You contain fire in the place that it's supposed to be. It brings heat. It can actually cook some things, some good s'mores. It does a lot of good, right? But when it gets outside of the parameters that it was built for, it can begin to cause a lot of destruction. You see, God created sex and sexual intimacy to be experienced between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. Not because he's trying to withhold you from fun, not because he hates you, but because he knows that the covenant of marriage is the only thing that 
can withstand, that can hold the power and all of the beauty that comes with sex. It's the only thing that can hold it. And you get it outside of that and it starts wrecking people. So if you're here tonight, I want to just first encourage you, don't fear it. Don't fear the desire and don't feed the desire. But have a proper view of it that God created it, but he created it to be used in the right context. Second thing, if you're here tonight and you're not married, which I'm going to assume is a lot of you, (laughs) then you got to know this. You need a combination of two things. You need a combination of fleeing, running from, and chasing, running to. You see, running from something is different than running to something. If somebody's chasing me, trying to steal my wallet, I'm just taking off, trying not to let them catch me, and I've got nowhere to go to. I'm just running circles. I'm zigzagging, just hoping I'm faster than them, right? That's different than me knowing right across that hallway is a police station, and I'm going to run straight to there and find refuge there. There's a difference between running only from something, but running not just from something, but running to something. Hear me closely. You need a vision as a young adult for what you are chasing after, not just what you're running from. Not, this isn't just, okay, here's what I don't want to do. This is what happens with a lot of Christians is they just focus on, okay, I can't do this. I can't do that. I just don't want to do this. Stay away from this. And this is where we get real messed up. The only focus is on trying what, you know, I don't, what I do not want to do rather than here's what I'm going after. Please listen closely. Virginity is not the goal. Purity is the goal. Because you can be a virgin and still be a pervert. It's true, isn't it? So virginity is not the goal. Purity is the goal. I want, God, I want a pure mind. I want a pure heart. I want pure thoughts. Yes, I want a pure body, but I want everything. I want purity. And that's great news for everyone in here tonight. Because every single one of us, including myself, can ask this question. God, how's my purity right now? I can ask that as a married man. God, how's my thoughts? God, do I have pure thoughts? Do I have pure heart? Do I have pure mind? God, where, where is my purity at? Listen, if virginity is the goal, then maybe you're here tonight and you're like, well, I've screwed that up already. No point of even really moving forward. I mean, that's behind me. And this is what happens for a lot of people is they say, well, I've already messed it up, so might as well just go ahead and go all the way in and just kind of live a reckless life. But listen, if purity is the goal, then no matter where you are, tonight you can say, Lord, help me. I need a pure mind. I need a pure heart. God, purify me. So what is purity? Purity is really simple. It's just this spiritual wholeness. That's purity. I want spiritual wholeness. Every part of me, every single part of me, including my sexuality, fully surrendered to God's design. Every single part of me. God formed this. Form this how you desire to form it. 
God, I'm all yours. Purify every part of me. I don't know about you, but I want wholeness. I want wholeness. I want access. I want access to the whole life that God has for me. And I know you do too. Whole access to the whole life that God has for me. Not just some of it. Not just like, God, you can have my career. You can have kind of where I live one day. God, you can have my athletic endeavors. You can have what I do with my money. You can have my job. You can have this. Uh, You want my sexuality? No, no, God, you can, you can have that too. God, what's, what's your design? God, what's your truth for that? See, I, listen, listen to me. I can't get all of him without him getting all of me. And so if there are areas of your life that you're holding back from him and you're saying, God, you can't, you can't have that part. I mean, you know I've given up, you know, dip, you know I've given up alcohol. You know I've given up the party thing, but, but God, God, you, you can't have this. Listen, you can't get all of him without him getting all of you. And it's not that I'm self-righteous and that my end goal is to boast about my purity and look at me, everybody. I, I don't do this or whatever. No, no, no. God, I just want, I want you to have all of me, every single part of me. I don't want to hold anything back from you. Hear me closely. Half surrender gets you half of him. Some would even say that half surrender gets you none of him. I forget who it was that said this, but he said, if, if, God, if Jesus is not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. If he's not Lord of all of your life, then really he's not Lord at all in your life. So where are you at with offering every piece of yourself to him? Fleeing and chasing. Flee sexual immorality. Flee. But chase after something. What am I running from and what am I running to? I just want to kind of get real practical here for a second. Is is this okay? Are we doing okay? Okay. All right. Hope it gets better here. Okay. Running from. Let me just give you what you're running from. Are you ready? This is what you're running from. You are running from a life ruled by lust. And this is countercultural. I realize this is wild. This is against everything that you're probably hearing out there. But you are running from a life ruled by lust. Notice I didn't say you're running from a life with sexual desire. No, sexual desire is a good thing. You're just running from a life ruled by lust. You can have sexual desire without lust. Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 5. He says this, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But he ratchets it up a lot and he says, but I have said that if you look at a woman with a lustful heart, then you have committed adultery. Or if you look at a man with a lustful heart. So he says, it's not just that you've committed an act, but it's, it's your heart. It's lust. Listen to me. Lust is excessive sexual desire. It is craving sexually what God has forbidden. So you are lusting when you are intentionally imagining and fantasizing about things that are out of bounds. That is lust. So in a way, lust is to sexuality 
what gluttony is to appetite. It is pushing it to an unhealthy level. Listen, it's okay to be a, to notice an attractive person. It is lust to imagine them naked or to imagine having sex with them. That is lust. So one of the most helpful things that you can do before you are married is to fight against lust. Every single person in here, fight against lust. Listen, if, you, if you're in a relationship, I, I felt like the Lord gave me this example. Somebody needs to hear this. If you're in a relationship where your boyfriend or girlfriend tells you that it is okay for them to view pornography because it's just a part of kind of life and it's part of the human condition and everybody needs that, and you're just supposed to kind of take that and go, okay, cool, sounds good. I want to tell you, you need to run as fast as you can from that. Because what is, what is being asked of you is that you invite lust into your relationship. And that you just settle and go, well, this is fine. This is okay. Listen, any, anything that is sexual intimacy outside of the covenant of marriage is lust. And you should go to war with it. Right now, partner with God, partner with God in finding victory over lust. Right now, tonight, before you're married. That's not something you tackle when you get married. That's something you tackle now. Resisting your urges now. Listen, for, for anybody in here who's in a relationship or you are about to be engaged or you are engaged, listen, Resisting your urges now is how you train yourself for covenantal faithfulness when you get married. If you can't resist lust now, what makes you think you're going to just obviously or all of a sudden turn the light and be able to resist it then? Now is the time. And I want to say this with as much sensitivity as I can, but if, if you are in a dating relationship, and you're not fighting to reserve sexual intimacy for marriage, then you're giving in to lust. You say, no, I mean, Austin, we, we love each other. I mean, we're probably going to get married. I mean, I mean, all this. I'm sure you do. And I'm sure you will. But hear me, you have, you have not committed your love to each other through marriage vows. Therefore, you're doing things backwards. You have committed your body to each other before committing your love to each other. You've committed your body to each other before committing your love to each other. And there is no such thing as a loving sexual relationship outside of marriage because marriage, the union of man and woman, is the only relationship which can rightly contain the beauty and the power of sex. So how do I run from a life ruled by lust? Well, First thing is I say you got to practice some boundaries. You have to practice boundaries. I, I can tell you I probably have this conversation as much as any conversation with young adults right now. If you're in a relationship, set your boundaries for the relationship. I realize that you have to be convinced, first of all, that what I've said up to this point is true. That he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Meaning his way is what brings me to life and life to the full. And if that is true, 
then it's probably necessary that you get some boundaries for your relationship. You set individual boundaries first, not couple boundaries. You say, this is my boundary, and if you can't follow it, then see you, bucko. No one likes being called bucko. Set your couple boundaries, your physical boundaries. Okay, get ready. It's going to get awkward. Are you ready? Is oral sex considered sex? I said this last year. I'll say it again. Is Chinese food considered food? I just thought it was funny. What are your boundaries? Give you a few examples. Clothes can never come off. Anything below the neck is off limits. So if you're into ears, <laughs> I'm just saying. <clears throat> I felt like we needed a good laugh. It was getting tense. Listen, I'm just giving you some options here. What, 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 are, what are some good boundaries? Can't go in each other's rooms. We're never on a bed together. We never lie down together. We, can't, we don't hang out past a certain time at night because nothing good ever happens past whatever. No movies by ourselves in the apartment by ourselves. Whatever the boundary is, you set it far, far inside so that you don't cross it. And for some of you, I realize this, this is brand new, but I just want to challenge you that if what we are saying is true, and I believe that it is, and that what God has called us to, to flee sexual immorality, any kind of sexual intimacy outside of marriage, to flee that, then it is your responsibility as a follower of Jesus to go, how do I run from a life controlled by lust? And I know, I know what some of you are saying, you're like, Austin, I don't know that this is possible. Like some of the things I just said, can't go in each other's rooms or all that seems like <laughs> you're thinking that is ridiculous. Hear me closely. It is very possible. You just have to care enough. And maybe what I'm saying right now is totally, completely foreign to you. And you're like, this is wild. I get it. And, and, and please hear me. This is not because... Like there's, a, there's this argument out there in culture that, is, that Christians or the biblical view of sex is a lower view of sex. It's not, it's a higher, it's like, no, it is, it is really, really powerful and really, really special when two souls mingle together like that. Therefore, let's do everything that we know how to do to hold it and to maintain that it stays in the right context that God has designed it for. It's incredibly special. It's not a lower view, it's a higher view. So don't be afraid to practice boundaries. Maybe some of you need to go home and have a boundaries talk tonight. To say, hey, if, if this is something, if we want to follow in God's design, then we got to change some things. And perhaps, perhaps if you can't say no in a relationship, then you should say no to the relationship. Practice boundaries. And then second thing I just want to encourage you with this is this. Practice a porn-free life. I want to read to you, and we're going to have it on the screen. It'll be kind of small, but I want to read to you a quote 
from a university professor. He was uh, testifying in front of the U.S. Senate several years ago, and he said this. He says, sexual pleasure is one of the most intense human experiences. Physically speaking, when a man or woman reaches sexual excitement, nerve endings release a sexual chemical into the brain called opium. Opium means opium-like and is a good description of the power of the chemical. Apart from a heroin-induced experience, nothing is more pleasurable than sex. This is a wonderful thing in a committed marriage relationship because it helps to bond two people together and to bring joy in living together in a committed relationship. There can be a downside to the pleasure of sex, however. If sexual experiences happen outside of marriage and are constantly repeated, a sex act can move from being a simple pleasure to an addiction. And instead of being bonded with a person, you become bonded to the act itself. And if the sexual experiences are pornography, listen to me, your body will instantly recall the images you viewed for relusting purposes. And these images are stamped into your brain with the aid of hormones released with the aid of sexual arousal. Apart from a heroin-induced experience, nothing is more pleasurable. But these images are stamped into your brain. So I want to encourage you with this. Resist pornography like you would resist a drug that would ruin your life. Because it will. Because it will. It will stamp images and things that you have seen into your brain where now your desire is simply to recall them and now to take that out on somebody else. Young man, listen to me. Your decisions determine your future. And when you willingly engage with lust, you are damaging your future. When you willingly engage with something that is stamping that kind of stuff in your brain so that you can then recall it, you are damaging your future. So back to the beginning, what do you believe will lead you to a life of thriving? What do you believe? So I want to encourage you, like, we're not just running from. I mean, we are fleeing. We are running from. We're, we're running from porn. We are running from lust, but we are running to something. We are chasing after something. And what is it that we're chasing after? We're chasing after a person, and his name is Jesus, but in the eyes of Jesus comes freedom. This is the good news. I'm turning it right now, so hang on to me. This is the good news, that in the eyes of Jesus and the person of Jesus is freedom. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, you got people who can attest to the faithfulness of God for thousands of years. He then says this, Let us lay aside every hindrance and every sin that so easily entangles us, ensnares us, 
And let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. Listen to this next line. Despising the shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, so here are a few words here. Lay aside. He says, let us lay aside, meaning this, throw off. You see, what happens every time you engage with sin of any kind is you start to get entangled. You start to get ensnared is what it says. Another way of saying that is chained. You start getting bound every time you lean into something that is away from God's design. And you start chaining yourself down. And these chains are heavy and they weigh a lot and they restrict me. They keep me from fulfilling what God has put on my life. According to our Bible, our sin causes us to be chained. So maybe you're a Christian, but God doesn't really have all of you, so you're living a life of sexual sin. Maybe you're just hooking up with people over the weekends, or maybe you and your girlfriend, or you and your boyfriend, you guys are in a loving, committed relationship, but you're still kind of engaging in this. Maybe you're fully addicted to porn. I'm not sure what it is, but it has you in chains, in bondage. You are a slave, and it's holding you. And the writer of Hebrews says, let us throw off let us throw off everything that has us chained. Listen, listen to me really closely. When you relax on what God has called you to refuse, you become a captive. And you are led into captivity, chained. When you relax on what he's called you to refuse, and I feel like there's some people in here tonight who are walking around with chains strapped to them. And you're carrying it through life, and it's a heaviness, it's a weight. Maybe you've got chains on you because, honestly, you're just not convinced. Like, you refuse to believe that God's way is better. And you're just like, no thanks. I mean, this is, this is cool and all. This is, you know, good little service or whatever, good thing to do on a Wednesday night. But no thanks, I like my thing better. Okay, that's fine. But you're, you're in chains. You're a slave. You are a slave to your desires. And this, this is the wild shift that you have to realize what culture is doing to you. It, it has changed the definition of freedom. And what the world is telling you about freedom is that freedom means that you can do whatever you want. It's just like, hey, you want to be free? Just kind of do your thing. Whatever feels good, that's what it means to be free. Go for it. You do you. That's freedom. If it feels right, go for it. But that is radically different from what the writers of the New Testament call freedom. And what they call freedom is Galatians chapter 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. 
Listen to verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. In other words, don't use your freedom to just do whatever you wanna do, but rather serve others humbly in love. Listen to verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. But listen to this last one. So that you are not to do whatever you want. Listen to me. The biblical definition of freedom is not that you are free to do what you want. It's that you are free to not do what you want. You hear me? So what that means is that you don't have to be a slave to your desire. You don't have to be a slave of just like, well, this is what I want to do. You can be set free from that. You don't have to just follow with like your urges and and what you kind of, what feels good or what you think you want to do. No, Jesus says, I've come to set you free. If, If the son has set you free, then you are free indeed. You are free from the power of your flesh. And you can now walk and live by the Spirit. Following the Spirit's lead, that's what it means to be free. So, as the writer of Hebrews says, let us throw off. The sin and the things that entangle us and chain us. Will you take Jesus up on his offer? to be free. Some of you, you're chained because like I said, you just aren't fully convinced that his way is better. And I just wanna invite you to repent tonight, to come to Jesus and say, God, if your way is better, then I submit to that and I need you to change me. But some of you, These last two is what's burdening my heart. Some of you are chained. You're walking around with chains, shackled, feeling the weight of chains. Because listen, because you refuse to confess your sin to one another. This this is the vision that I feel like God gave me tonight. Of the (laughs) like our enemy, our spiritual enemy, the devil is not impressed with our songs and our messages. If you walk out of here with sin that is just deep down in here that nobody else knows about, he's like, ha ha, I still got him. He can sing all he wants. He can listen all he wants. He can show up on Wednesday nights all he wants. But look, he's hiding secrets. Nobody knows about that. Nobody knows about that. No one knows what she's actually doing and you are chained by your secrets. And I just wanna invite you tonight to bring to him your sin. Listen, God can't heal what you're not willing to reveal. And the scripture calls us to confess our sins one to another. It literally says, confess your sin one to another and you will be healed. There's healing when you get out of the darkness and into the light. When you come out of hiding, out of secrecy, and you get it into the light. You say, I'm done hiding. I'm done pretending. I need somebody to know what's actually going on. There's healing when we confess. And so I think some of you need to take the scripture 
seriously. And to go, I, I don't just need to confess my sin to God. That's a good thing, but I need to confess to somebody else. I need to get this thing into the light. But then some of you, the last person that I just felt like this was for is that you are chained, walking around shackled because you refuse to release the shame. And maybe you're in here tonight and you're like, Pastor, this is, this is nothing new. The problem isn't that I don't believe. The problem is that I do believe, and yet I can't get rid of the shame of what I've done in my past. I can't get rid of my faults. I can't get rid of how I've messed this up. And your shame is the chain. And your past has changed you. And what I love about that verse in Hebrews at the very end, it says this, that he endured the cross, despising the shame. Listen, when Jesus went to the cross on your behalf and my behalf, he took the sin of the world and the shame of the world. He took the shame from your sin on him, and he put it to death. Listen, Jesus put your shame to death so that you could live without it. And so how dare you? I just want to say that lovingly as I can. How dare you keep carrying it? Like, like. Jesus died for that. The scripture says that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ Jesus, regardless of what you have done in the past, you can bring your shame to him, your past failures, your past mistakes, and go, go I'm done. I can't be chained to this anymore. I am free. It is for freedom that he has set us free. If the son has set you free, then you are free. Do not pick the chains up again. That's what happens to a lot of us is we keep picking them up. And we keep picking up the shame and God's going, no, 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 my son, my daughter. I've set you free. I've set you free. And so the invitation that I wanted to lead us to tonight is simply this. Maybe you've stopped running. Maybe, maybe when it comes to sexual sin and that kind of thing in your life, You've just become idle. Just stop caring. It's not really a thing anymore. I don't really care about it. I want to ask you if you sense anything in your spirit right now, that is probably God saying, I want you to start running again. I want you to start running from fleeing, and I want you to start running to the Father. <laughs> I want you to start running to freedom. I want you to start picking up your feet again. And don't be idle, but start running. The invitation is to begin running tonight. And maybe for many of you, I was praying before this with some people, maybe for many of you, February 21st is the night that you look back on and you go, that was the night that I surrendered it all. And so I wanna lead us in prayer and I wanna invite you to respond. This isn't just a, a prayer for you to listen to. This is, I want you to begin asking, God, what, what are you doing? What are you leading me to? What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? How should you respond? And I just felt kind of oppressed tonight to open up this altar. This is kind of the front of the stage. We call it an altar. There's nothing special about it. But it's just a place for you to come to say, okay, Lord, tonight, February 21st, I'm going to start running again. Maybe you need to come tonight and kind of visually lay down your chains 
the chains from your mistakes, the chains from your past, the chains that are holding you, the, the sin that so easily entangles you. And tonight you need to come forward and just say, okay, I'm going to lay it down and just get on your face before God and say, God, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. This thing's got a hold on me, and it's greater than I can control. It's greater than I can defeat. God, I need you. And so I just want to ask, will, will you respond? Will you respond? Is there something God's doing in your life? And you need to say, okay, I'm going to take a step of faith here. Listen, God can do something even as you sit in your seat right there. But sometimes it takes a physical, like, act to say, okay, God, I'm responding to your movement in my life. I'm responding to what you're doing. So even as people begin to come forward, I just want to invite you. Maybe you need to come forward and just kneel and pray. Maybe you need to come forward, ask somebody to come with you and say, will you come pray with me? Maybe you need to come forward and just grab somebody and say, listen, I need you to go down there and I need to confess some things to you. I've been carrying something all by myself. We're going to have a few people from our prayer team just come up and stand. If you just need somebody to pray over you, you don't have to share details. You don't have to share anything, but you just need somebody to pray for me. Is tonight the night for you Tonight, the night where you begin to go, God, I need you to break these chains off of me. Break these chains off of me. So if you're in your seat, I just want to pray for you. If you bow your heads and we're just going to get in a moment and Rachel's going to lead us and I'm going to let you just worship where you're at. You worship where you're at. You come forward. You pray by yourself. You, you respond however you feel God leading you to respond. So, Father, we run to you. We run to you. Break our heart, Lord. Break our heart for what breaks yours. God, rid us. Rid us of any idol. Rid us of anything that we have put in place that is keeping us from experiencing wholeness and fullness in you. Break our hearts, Lord.